Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experience of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. This is the fourth part of the Boston Biotech series, produced in collaboration with the Professional Development and Career Office at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. In this series, we talk with alumni who work in the Boston Biotech ecosystem. If you are a Johns Hopkins student, we encourage you to join the online Boston Biotech community on the OneHop platform to connect with the podcast guests, as well as other JHU alumni who work at Boston. You can find the link on our website at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com or in the show notes. My name is Joe Varielli, and I'm joined here with our co-hosts. Hi, I'm Roshan Chickermain. And I'm Jenna Glatzer. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Kaufman. He's the founder and chief executive officer at Karyopharm, a pharmaceutical company that develops and commercializes various drugs directed against nuclear export and related targets for the treatment of cancer, inflammation, viral diseases, and other disorders of proliferation. Their lead drug, Selinexor, an inhibitor of Exportin-1, was recently granted FDA approval on December 18, 2020, for treatment of refractory or relapsed multiple myeloma, and it's currently being assessed in a number of other oncology indications. The company is also working on a second-generation Exportin-1 inhibitor and a dual inhibitor of PAC4 and NAMPT, also in oncology indications. Prior to Karyopharm, Michael served executive roles at Millennium Pharma, Predix Pharmaceuticals, Epix Pharmaceuticals, Proteolix Pharmaceuticals, and Onyx Pharmaceuticals, and he served on the board of Zalicus and Metamark Genetics, and he was an advisor to Bessemer Venture Partners. Lastly, he's a Hopkins alum, having earned his MD-PhD at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. We're so happy to be speaking to him today. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Many thanks. It's great to be here. So to start things off, could you just briefly introduce us to Karyopharm Therapeutics and tell us a bit about your role there? Sure. Um, Karyopharm was actually the brainchild of my wife, Sharon Shatham, who graduated from uh, Tel Aviv University with a small degree in biophysical chemistry and computational biophysics. Um, she likes to design drugs on the computer, which avoids a lot of the wet work initially in drug screening and a lot of the 10 or $20 million laboratories that you have to set up to screen compounds. So her secret sauce uh, is to create, take the three-dimensional structure of proteins that are generally publicly available and use them to, as, as a basis of sort of a, a lock, if you will, and the drugs make up the key. And she can do this virtually. And it's, uh, it's basically, it's essentially only the cost of labor to do a screening uh, that way. But what was cool about her thoughts were that um, she decided that after she left her previous company, that she wanted to work on a big target in cancer, something that really got at one of the hallmarks of cancer. Uh, and, and this is a little bit out of vogue even today because most people are focused on genetically defined cancers, which is great, uh, but unfortunately only applies to those small, relatively small percentage of patients who have those kinds of cancers. Uh, but for the vast majority of the other patients who have multiple mutations and multiple uh, different kinds of genetic abnormalities, we need broad anti-cancer drugs that are different than chemotherapy and might be adjunctive to immunotherapy and some of the other ways we think about treating cancer. So she started to read the literature and came up with 
uh, a protein whose job it was to export other proteins from the nucleus. And uh, back when I graduated Hopkins, we thought the nuclear pore was basically an opening and proteins and people went in and out of this nuclear pore, uh, no problem. Of course, this is not true. We, we need chaperones to get in, we need chaperones to get out. And uh, this is highly regulated. It turns out that all of the tumor suppressor proteins, that is all of those proteins who detect DNA damage are exported by a single chaperone or a single carrier. And as you know, this is very unusual in biology to have a single nodal point for anything. There's no redundancy known in this pathway. And all cancer cells overexpress this chaperone, this exportin one. It's one of seven known exportins, but it's the only one that carries the major tumor suppressors. All cancers overexpress it, which leads to the functional dysregulation or the functional turning off of tumor suppressor proteins. They don't do their job. And therefore, in cancer, we see that the tumors just grow. Uh, if you block this protein, you get P53 and P73 and FOXO and BRCA1 and P21 and P, and I could go on and on and on. You get the point. All of these proteins build up in the nucleus. And as long as two or three of them are not mutated, which is true in all cancers, there's at least two or three intact tumor suppressors. As long as they build up in the nucleus, they will direct that cancer cell to commit suicide or, or go into apoptosis. And her, the beauty of what she realized was that every time she read about a tumor suppressor, it was regulated by this single chaperone. So she set out to create a small molecule inhibitor of these proteins and lo and behold, and completely contrary to what I said, uh, we, I said to her, we'll never get an oral inhibitor of export because it's gonna be too toxic, it's gonna kill the liver. Um, and it just proves the old adage, you've gotta do the experiment because Sure enough, the only organ we don't have any toxicity on is the liver uh, with an oral compound, which is, which is unexpected and, and beautiful. Uh, we've come up with uh, KPT-330, which became Selenexer. We started off with KPT-0100, which was the, the, best protein, the best one that came out of the virtual screen um, on the computer that I mentioned. And we ended up uh, iterating that to about 230 times combination of wet and dry lab, if you will. And uh, we have Selenexer now FDA approved in three indications, refractory myeloma, second line myeloma, and diffuse large B cell lymphoma, and uh, working on lots of other areas. Awesome. So now perhaps turning back the clock a little bit, um, after your MD, PhD, you went on to play a series of management roles in a variety of pharmaceutical companies. They named some of them earlier. Could you perhaps take us on a trip down memory lane and describe what that journey was like fresh out of your MD, PhD? Sure. Um, it wasn't quite the uh, nice line, you know, that we all like to pretend. Um, I, I was completely nerdy in college and I knew I wanted to go and do an MD or an MD, PhD program. And Hopkins gave me the best option. I had a couple of other really good choices, but, but I wanted to go to Hopkins and they, they were certainly the most uh, gracious. And um, I got to work with Tom Kelly, who was then the head of the Department of Molecular Biology for my PhD, and got great training in medicine. I'll, I'll be happy to say on this that it was far better than Harvard's training. Um, back then at Hopkins, we were allowed to do stuff in the wards without, you know, with minimal supervision because there was just nobody else. Uh, and it was great training. I intended to be a part-time researcher, part-time clinician in academia. When I graduated Hopkins, I got into the Beth Israel um, and Brigham. It was the BI mainly uh, program 
internal medicine, which was co-trained with the Brigham and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And I did two years of internal medicine. And I went into a fellowship at Mass General Hospital with the intention again of being, of having a lab at MGH and, um, and, and also seeing patients. Um, what became apparent to me, and I actually love practicing medicine. I love, you know, playing around people's meds. And, and I will say to everyone on the call, whether you're going down the research route or, or the medicine route, um, direct patient care, you know, everyone's going to come up against needing a medicine. Unfortunately, everybody dies and there is going to be a point in everyone's life when they need something. And frankly, most of us are going to need a lot of stuff before we even get to that close to being uh, passing away point. And it is great to be able to help people fight these terrible diseases. It is, it is honestly an honor and an inspiration. Um, some of my best times during my crazy internship and residency, sleep deprived, you know, generally not smelling great, um, you know, running around in scrubs and so on. We're, we're literally watching people that came in sick as hell um, and, and be able to fix them up to, in, in a few hours um, and eventually get most of them out of the hospital, thankfully. And, and the progress we've made even since 1992, I literally get teary-eyed when I think about it, about how far medicine has come from HIV being unnamed when I graduated Hopkins to essentially a chronic disease with almost a normal lifespan for hep, hep C, which was called non-A, non-B hepatitis. We didn't even know what it was, to being cured, curable now. Um, hepatitis B having no treatments and a lot of discussion of vaccines. Uh, we didn't have a vaccine yet. And the first company I was at was, was uh, luckily one of the first people to clone it um, and, and come up. And heart failure, which was a two year death sentence now, which is a five plus year um, chronic disease for most patients and, and patients who can get backup medicines and assist devices and even transplants. So medicine has come an enormous way. Um, but what occurred to me when I was at Mass General after a great year of clinical there and I had a flourishing internal medicine practice that I ran myself. I was the attending for my internal medicine practice. I had my rheumatology fellowship was that I was getting bored. And I was bored because it was, you're only as good as a doctor as your best tools, your best diagnostics, your best medications and your best surgical techniques. And I got tired of the same old, same old discussion with patients about the side effect of steroids and the side effects of methotrexate and for even hypertension medicines and so on. And there was an attending at um, Mass General who seduced me literally into coming to an interview at Biogen. Now, and back in those days, you did not talk to industry, especially when you were at Man's Greatest Hospital, which is the other thing that MGH stands for. They obviously didn't talk to the Hopkins people much. Um, and it took me six months to agree to go for an interview. But when I did, I realized that if I could get one medicine to approval, I could change the world. And obviously this is a team effort like most in medicine are, but this would really change a lot of people's lives. And the other point is it would change science and medicine forever so that the next generation of medicines would be even better, less side effects, more activity and so on. And this really appealed to me. So really in a 24 hour period, having finally agreed to go for those interviews, the interviews were 10 hours, uh, eight in the morning until six at night. And I was dead, I was brain dead. Um, and I actually went jogging, which I don't do, but I, I needed to uh, after that. And I just decided, you know, this is really what I wanted to take my PhD research uh, in molecular biology and biochemistry and my medical knowledge and apply. I kept my clinic going for two more years, um, but I entered Biogen as a medical director and worked on lupus 
Um, that program did come to fruition, which unfortunately is true for 95 plus percent of programs. Um, but, but I learned about how to get new drugs into the clinic and they're actually still working on the CD40 ligand target, which is of course an exciting target still um, in autoimmune disease and also on the cancer side. I then went on to Millennium to work on new molecular diagnostics. This is before the genome was cloned. And uh, this is before everybody knew the playbook. This is like knowing all the actors in a play, um, but not knowing what the script is. And we didn't even know the actors. And it's hard to believe how far we've come. So Millennium was in the genomic race. Um, this was co-won by, by both the public at the NIH, Francis Collins leading it, um, the private work of Eric Lander um, at, at MIT and, and, and so on. And uh, you know what was going on at Human Genome Sciences, Solera and Millennium to come out with the entire human genome so that we knew the entire playbook. It is shocking to think that we didn't back then. And by the way, when I graduated Hopkins, we still were dicking around with the T cell receptor, which we didn't, weren't really sure about that either. Um, things have accelerated enormously. So I went to Millennium, I worked on molecular diagnostics. We came out with a new melanoma diagnostic that can predict whether your melanoma, even if it was thin, would actually likely kill you. Um, to be blunt. And that's a really important question for the 10% of people who that thin melanoma will kill you. You need to have a, a more radical surgery and you need to get adjuvant therapy. And we have those now. But without those kind of predictive tools, you didn't know what to do. And you didn't want to give 10 people a radical surgery when it would only benefit one person. So it helped figure out those. We worked on some other tests that we didn't win, but the kinds of ideas that came out of our breast cancer screening tests and cervical cancer have, have been uh, won by other companies, if you will. And there's definitely competition here, and that's great, because at the end of the day, for patients and for doctors, we need better tests and better medicines. Uh, Millennium Diagnostics Company was, was bought by the parent, and I, a drug fell into my lap called PS341 for the company that invented it, Proscript 341. Uh, nobody knew what the heck it was. It was a proteasome inhibitor. And they were playing around in prostate cancer. In fact, uh, the guys at Hopkins and I talked about it. Don Coffey was, a, was really one of the big reasons I went to Hopkins. Uh, but I knew, I knew Bill Nelson and, and Alan Parker and everybody. Um, and um, they were also playing around in a disease that was called myeloma. Back then, myeloma was virtually unheard of. A lot of people confused it with melanoma. They called it multiple melanoma. Um, and there were no good treatments. It was a death sentence in one to two years. It was alkylating agents and steroids, and it was terrible. And it was a miserable type of death, as most cancers are. Uh, they handed this drug to me as a rheumatologist and said, figure out if it works. And I knew enough internal medicine to just dive in, looked at some early data. We went for it. We actually wrote a clinical trial, the first of its kind for, mel for myeloma. Um, that led to the accelerated approval of PS341, which is brand named Velcade, um, which became a, a multi-billion dollar product. More importantly, it treated patients and saved people's lives and extended their lives. It changed the practice of multiple myeloma. It moved it from chemotherapy to targeted therapy. And it was a wonderful, wonderful, and still is a drug that's used frequently. Um, and that was, there was nothing better than watching and me meeting patients who's, who were dying of myeloma literally dying and watching the miracles that, that giving a cancer drug could do without hair falling out, without them puking their guts out. And um, it did have some side effects, of course, like all drugs made their fingers tingle and neuropathy and so on. But that was the main side effect, affected 30 to 40% of people. Um, but it really extended life. 
And other drugs came in from other companies, drugs that were derived from thalidomide, uh, the scary drug that used to be used for nausea for pregnancy and cause all sorts of birth defects. A company called Celgene had the audacity to test it in uh, multi myeloma and it worked. And they made some, importantly, they made some derivatives of thalidomide called Revlimid, uh, which is one of the top selling cancer drugs ever. And uh, that drug in combination with Velcade truly revolutionized. The two put together created a whole new platform. In the old days in myeloma, there were a few crazy doctors that would sit in the back of the lymphoma units in hospitals and sort of apologetically say, I treat myeloma. And their colleagues would say, what do you mean you treat it? You don't treat it. You watch people die. And these two drugs, Revlimid and Velcade together changed this to a more of a chronic disease with a three to four year lifespan. So doubled their lifespan expectancy uh, and subsequent drugs that partly that I worked on and other people worked on have really changed things. So this, this jumping around from one drug to the next one company to the next is really the goal is really the same. It's just to change medicine to bring new, better therapies to patients that are more active, better side effects, more convenient and to, to change medicine forever. Uh, We'll probably talk a little bit about my last drug. I've been in myeloma now for over 20 years, just happenstance. Uh, we made a better version of Velcade, and that was called Kyprolis that I was the chief medical officer for. And more recently, we have Expovio, uh, Selenexor approved for myeloma, but that's going to be uh, across many, many more cancers. Yeah, um, so that's a that's a quite an incredible journey. And quite incredible changes across the patient landscape for you know many different types of cancer um, and such a, a poignant thought um, as a physician wanting to be a tool maker um, changing some of the tools that are available to treat patients and um, it's just so incredible um, so uh, throughout that journey um, it seems like you moved um, from uh, CEO position at one biotech to another, and some of that was acquisition, some of that's just the, the normal churn of the industry. Um, um, so I would expect that each of your working day as a CEO would be entirely different. Um, but having been a CEO at multiple biotech companies now, seeing all of these uh, major changes, and as CEO kind of having to steer the ship and take care of your people, make sure your assets actually get into patients, um, things like that. What would you say are some of the most important responsibilities of a biotech CEO in creating a successful bio comp biotech company that really makes changes for patients? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we say in this industry, and it's, it's so hard to act, it's easy to say is that we focus on the patient. I mean, I think every company says that. The question is, do you really focus on the patient? Or are you nervous and fearful and anxious about, you know, if the drug shows some side effects in somebody, then quote, FDA is going to shut us down, unquote. Um, if we have a side effect, the investment community is going to pull all their money out. And, and the fact is, if you want to be on the cutting edge of science and medicine, especially with most uh, serious diseases where you have to start in those patients who are the most sick, and certainly in cancer, that's the standard way to start with a new medicine, you better have some guts. Um, courage is one of the biggest things you have to have. And you, you know, there's nothing more terrifying than that day when this new chemical entity goes into a human being. Now, until we have better models, these are all these chemicals are going into animals first. And ours went into 
to mice and rats and dogs and monkeys. Um, and we knew probably that things were gonna be okay. We even put it in dogs with lymphoma and had good results. In fact, one of our compounds got approved in dogs with lymphoma and is sold by a company that does animal health um, called Vertinexer. Uh, the company is, is Anaviv. Um, but, but you better have some courage. And I run, whenever I've run companies, I've always focused on patients. As soon as we saw that our drug was tolerated, we knew the side effects were nausea and low appetite. We knew how to get around those. We made expanded access available to the patients uh, because our view was that if you were dying of cancer and you wanted to try our drug, you should have it available. And it's a scary thing to do because these people are sick and they're dying. Um, I can tell you the good news is the FDA, the European Medicines Association, Association, the Israeli regulators, the Canadian regulators all understand that when the other option is death, you should expect side effects and you will expect bad things to happen to these folks. They are going to die. That's what expanded access means. But it also means you get a chance to improve their lives and learn something. And it's a two-way street. If you can learn from them, and we have learned a lot from those patients. We A lot of the, what we're doing today is because of our expanded access program. So that's the first thing I would focus on, really focus on the patients and walk the walk. The, the second thing you have to do is you have to worry about funding the company. You know, a, a beautiful car that has no gasoline is useless. It's not enough to just stand and stare at it. You gotta pay people, you gotta take care of them. Um, you have to have it available, the, the funds available. So you have to fund the company. And a lot of the early days, Frankly, a lot of the worry and nervousness is to make sure you can adequately fund the company. It's a lot easier once you get public um, to fund a company. It's a lot harder to deal with the day-to-day -day angry investors or excited investors, exuberant investors. Obviously, the angry ones are tougher um, as a public company, but the funds are much more available as a public company. And so one of our goals was to get the company public as quickly as possible, because frankly, it's virtually impossible to do good oncology clinical research these days with uh, as a private company. It's each patient that we treat is over $100,000 in costs. Uh, and you run up to 1000 patients, that's $100 million just for external costs, just for patients. So you, you got to be able to fund the company. And the third thing is you got to hire bright people that are focused and, and have the same philosophy you do. It is so easy these days to be smart and erudite and clever and point holes in anything. And unfortunately, progress doesn't get made that way. Progress gets made, as Steve Jobs used to say, by the crazy people who don't put up with the status quo. I mean, the entire field of biotechnology and pharmaceuticals is about not putting up with the status quo. And the notion that you can somehow be comfortable in this job um, and break, make breakthroughs is crazy unless you're willing to take risks and, and have people that are philosophically inclined. So we, of course, have safety groups. We have quality assurance groups. Of course, we have people that are now as a commercial company, we have to have compliance and we have to follow the law. And of course we follow the law. But at the same time, we have to always remember that our first thing to do is bring new drugs to patients. The last thing I'll say is that a CEO's job on the side of all of this is the culture in the company. We developed a, a mantra called iCure, I-C-U-R-E, innovation, courage, urgency, resilience, and energy. You'll notice we don't things like, we don't say honesty because if you're dishonest, we don't, it's not even a discussion. We don't, we also don't want criminals. You know, we, we can't deal with that. We want people that are innovative and courageous and urgent. And the guaranteed one thing in this business is you're gonna make mistakes. 
So you darn well better have the resilience and the energy to get up off the ground when you get knocked down and, and deal with it. And we went through all that. And I've been through that many times in my life. And frankly, you know, the saying is you only learn, you learn a lot more from your mistakes for sure. When things go perfectly, you know that it worked. You didn't really learn much. When things don't go well, you can go back and look and see, see what happened. What could I have done differently? And usually you say, well, I did at the time I used the best knowledge I had. Hopefully that's what you say. And we had to do the experiment. So those are the things that I thought about as, as a CEO and even as my chief medical officer roles in, in various companies. So you touched a little bit on the eye care um, ethos of hiring people, but I'm wondering, you know, when you're trying to recruit those first 10 to 20 employees for a new company venture, who are you looking for and what qualities in those employees do you find the most valuable? Yeah, you have to find people that are, are unwilling to fail. Now, obviously, if the science turns against you and, and we're just wrong, you know, it's, it's just not going to go well. But many times our science and our preclinical is good enough that we can find a path. We had a very tough beginning. Our drug is complicated. It doesn't cause major disasters in patients. Most cancer drugs do. So you get up to a certain dose, something terrible happens, and then you back off the dose. Nothing terrible happened. Our patients felt a little bit sick. They, they, didn't, they were nauseated, they didn't eat much, and they were tired. But nothing dramatic happened and we missed it. We missed what the tolerated dose was. And it took us two years to swim around and figure that out, but we found, we found our way. When you're starting off our first drug that we put into monkeys for testing, it looked great in rats, it looked great, it cured cancer in mice, et cetera. We got into monkeys, we had terrible neurological side effects. They were swinging around like they were drunk. It turned out they had dopamine excess and it actually is a potential therapeutic because we were causing neuroprotection and dopamine, we were saving the dopamine striatal neurons and it turned out probably that we could have positive dopaminergic effects. But this was a problem when monkeys are swinging unbalanced in cages and, uh, and it's scary as hell. And you don't want to do that to any animal, but especially primates. And you have to recover from that. And you have to call up your investors and say, we have a six month setback. And no, I can't guarantee you that the next compound that we put into monkeys is going to be okay. Luckily it was, but you have to be able to stomach that kind of stuff. Uh, and you have to have employees that believe in you and believe in the mission that say, we're not going to stop until this drug gets into patients and hopefully it helps them. And those are the kinds of early stage people you need. It's really, again, go back to the Steve Jobs. I, I always love that, the crazy ones. And, and those are the people in the garage. You know, my wife started this in literally our, her home office in the kitchen. Uh, the compounds were ordered from all over the world and came in the kitchen. The people that used to show up here, weird people on, you know, after work on a Thursday night at seven o'clock to begin debating chemical structures and how they were gonna fix the pharmacology of these early stage compounds. And they were the ones that said, we're not gonna stop until we succeed. And, and that's what you need. That's the kind of attitude you need. So thinking about those early moments of founding a company, for you as a founder and a CEO, I'm sure you've ended up in situations where maybe you're seeking funding or recruiting that high level talent where you had to describe your core technology and your goals for Cario Farm in maybe under five minutes or even three minutes. You don't know how much time you're going to get with someone. And this is often something that we also have to do as graduate students uh, in describing our thesis or an important aspect of our research project to someone that's not in our field of study. 
did you have to perfect this type of elevator pitch? Uh, and how important is that in the uh, initial stages of starting a company? Look, it's it's important and you do the best job you can. The, um, the elevator pitch that we have today that basically say that we restore the activity of tumor suppressor proteins, that simple sentence took three or four years because we didn't understand really what we were doing. Um, we kind of were blocking nuclear export and P53 ends up in the nucleus and then it activates this and that and the other blah, 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 downstream, you know, and P21 goes on and so on. Um, we didn't have it crisp. And it's, it's something that, you know, if going back and looking at my own thesis, which had to do with the degradation mechanism for thymidine kinase in the cell cycle, um, you know, I could do a quick elevator pitch now, but, but when we were through it, going through it, we couldn't. Um, it's something to think about very early on in, in your thesis and to, to really try to start to hone that. This is the kind of stuff that nobody gets just like that. It just requires some iterations, talking to people, giving the pitch and, and not having a huge ego about being perfect. Just try and keep trying until you get something that you, you've really honed. Um, nobody would touch this pathway when we started. You, you alluded to it earlier. Um, Roshan, when you, when you talked about how much biology is attacked here, you know, this is a pathway for cancer. It's a pathway for vir many viruses, including COVID and HIV and, and influenza. It's also a pathway for inflammation and it's a pathway for neural protection. Who would be nutty enough to mess with this, right? It's just too much biology and thought something catastrophic was going to happen. And, and what we've learned in medicine is you got to try, um, but, but getting that pitch proper and figuring out why it doesn't actually cause catastrophic problems is something that takes a long time to hone. So I'd say just, just keep doing it and, and you get better at it. Some people are better than others, uh, but it takes time. So transitioning back now to the Cario Farm of today, you are overseeing this amazing event in the life of a biotech that is the transition from a clinical stage company to that of a commercial company with an approved product. And obviously this shift doesn't happen overnight, but I'm wondering how you're adapting as a company to make this transition. Yeah, well, realize that there's there's always a number of transitions that are all tough in, in biotech. You start off with an idea with a bunch of wonderfully kooky scientists who are gathered around and basically trying to get something to work in vitro first. Um, and in cancer, it's actually pretty simple. And I, I sit on many cancer company boards and I, and I, remind them that at the end of the day, we're trying to kill cancer cells and leave normal cells alone. That in a nutshell, that's your elevator pitch for a new cancer drug. Kill the cancer cells, leave the normal cells alone. Um, and, and that's what the early founders are trying to do. Then they're the people that have to get it to work in animals, which means it has to stick around in animals for long enough. And they're kind of a different species of people, no, no pun intended, to get it to work in animals. Because the pharmacological properties of a drug, and some of you all, I think you are working in pharmacology, you know, worrying about bioavailability, whether it's oral or, or even systemic exposure, you know, things like VSS and, and, and half-lives and things. This is not what most chemists think about, or at least not what most biologists or bio, uh, chemical biologists think about. Uh, and, then the, and then the drug moves into toxicology, which are a bunch of very odd people. They're wonderful, but all they care about is how many side effects and what the target organ toxicity is. Now, these are all scientists and they also have that in common, but then suddenly the drug ends up in people. And this weird new species of employee called a medical doctor comes in. And you know the old joke that God wishes he were a doctor? Um, 
you know, you got to deal with a huge shift in the company once it becomes clinical, because along with the MD comes a bunch of safety people. And in cancer, it's a bit odd because you've got to train people to understand that at the end of the day, if the tumor doesn't shrink, the patient's going to die. Of course, we're going to worry about safety. Of course we are. But if we can stop the tumor, then we'll figure out how to deal with the safety issues for most cancer drugs. And that's the way it works. So you really, at each of these stages, there is a change in a company. It is fair to say that once the regulator, then the regulatory group steps in when you start to get serious. Anybody can file an investigational new drug with the FDA. Not anybody can get a new drug application approved. Um, and we, we had fun at our company because our first time we tried to get it approved, we went through an oncology drug advisory committee, which is when the FDA was really on the fence and our FDA was not on the fence. They did not want our drug approved. And we were relentless saying, you're making a mistake. You need to approve this. Patients need this. And we got enough patients and doctors to say it. They said, okay, we'll take it to the public. And they just hammered us in public. Uh, we lost the vote eight to five, but the beauty of the vote was that the one myeloma expert on the panel actually effectively countered every one of the FDA's arguments and frankly said, this drug is as good as any other drug in, in myeloma and it works after all of them have failed. And the FDA listened to their great credit. And three months later, we had an approval. Um, after one of the most difficult regulatory battles I ever saw. But dealing with regulatory people inside the company is a different species, it's a different language. And finally, you get that day comes when the FDA letter comes through and your marketing application has been approved, your NDA has been approved. And then the fun begins because now you're dealing with a whole bunch of, you've gone from a bunch of introverted, scientifically based, regulatorily based people to a bunch of extroverted man manic sales types, marketing types who want glossy things with different fonts and colors that are have to be discussed for two and three hours at a time and so on. It's a whole different ballgame. It is fair to say that becoming commercial is the biggest change you make, but don't, don't underestimate the changes that went along to get there. Um, and you have to balance this. The commercial folks are outward looking, then you have this kind of a middle ground group called the medical science liaisons, whose job it is to explain all that cool medical science. They don't have to stick with the drug label. They work a little bit with commercial. They work a lot with clinical. They work a little bit with regulatory. And you've got this whole group going and, and interacting. It's a lot of fun. It's pretty complicated. But at the end of the day, if you keep the patients in front of you, and when we get into arguments and discussions about which way we're going, we say, well, this is going to be better for patients. And as long as our compliance lawyers see a way to justify it, I didn't say our compliance lawyers love it because most lawyers don't love things. They basically worry about risk, but as long as they can justify it and it works for the patient, we will, we will generally go with it. So it is a balance for sure. So outside of carrier farm, just to take a very broad level view of this, what trends in the biotech industry are you most excited about right now? Well, this, this is an unbelievable time for medical and medical science. One of the things I realized when I was a little nerd, uh, a young nerd, I should say, um, and I knew I wanted to bring science to medicine. And I had a sense, even when I was in college, even be, maybe even high school, that, that science was kind of escalating at an exponential rate and that medicine was kind of plodding along at a practicing medicine. And I thought the idea of practicing medicine was maybe we should get it right. Um, 
And I had that sense. And I, and I think um, what we've begun to see now, and I think COVID brought it to the forefront, is we can do amazing things. I mean, let's, let's be blunt, let's call it what it is. Our industry has saved the world, period. We full stop, this would have been a five to 10 year pandemic for sure if we were futzing around doing the usual slow vaccine development uh, that was usually done. This was not. This was done with the best science, looking all over the world, uh, ingenuity across many, many countries. You know, America, as usual, and I will be strong about that, America typically is the engine. Pfizer grabbed what it thought was one of the best. Moderna had its own, um, and they just put a lot of gasoline into that car, into that car and they, they sped off. And the FDA cooperated and the vaccines advisory committees cooperated. And, you know, we're starting to figure out how to distribute this thing properly now, but we saved the world. We can do that. Um, the war on cancer is slowly being won. When I was little and President Nixon said, we're gonna have the war on cancer and we can cure cancer because we can put men on the moon. It was a great political slogan that has no reality in science. Obviously mathematics is several hundred years ahead of biological science. One thing has nothing to do with the other. Um, engineering is way ahead of evolution, if you will, in, in biology of medicine. Um, but we are starting to win that war. The, the changes in cancer treatment are such that today I would become an oncologist. I couldn't back then. When I trained, it was all bad chemotherapy. We, were, we didn't have good supportive care. People were puking their guts out. Their hair was falling out. They were miserable. They couldn't eat. It was horrible and they would die and they would die miserable. And many of the cancers, not all, but many of the cancers now are chronic diseases. Um, we're starting to treat stroke. We haven't made the kind of progress we wanted to. Alzheimer's slowly. But the fact that we're talking about these diseases now, seriously, we used to talk about heart attacks. People died of heart attacks. The mortality from heart attacks is five to 10%. It's one fifth of what it used to be. People are living with heart failure for a long time. I mean, we, we are treating most infectious diseases, the gloom and doom of bacteria that were super bugs taking over the world and wiping us out, you know, millions at a time have not come to fruition because evolution doesn't work that way. We have enough antibiotics, we need more, but we have enough antibiotics now that for most patients, you can alternate the old stuff and the new stuff. We used to get people in the VA hospitals whose bugs were resistant to the wonderful drugs, my professor at Hopkins would call them wonder mycins. They would come back that third generation cephalosporins, which we just started to get back then, would be resistant, but they would respond to doxycycline. Seriously, doxycycline for acne. But, but they would because the bugs couldn't, couldn't play in all fields at once. So they would become sensitive to doxy when they were resistant to ceftriaxone and ceftazidine. Anyway, my point is, is that we can do wonderful things. Um, I mentioned earlier HIV, hep C and so on, even cystic fibrosis now. We have gene therapies that we never had. We are talking about editing the genomes of people. We can reverse sickle cell anemia in some small number of patients now, but things are working. We've got beta thalassemia being treated. We've got ocular diseases that are degenerative that people went blind before we can do gene therapy on, hearing disorders. Um, there are just, it, it pretty much with the genome being cloned, with the editing functions of CRISPR and other types of enzymes, this is remarkable. The kinds of cell therapies we're looking at in cancer, but also starting to move into regenerative medicine and so on. It is a great time. And there, the world is, is available. Um, the techniques are available and we are in the, in, on the road to stamping out many, many, many diseases. And of course we will always have more. 
we didn't have to worry about uh, heart failure a long time ago because everyone died of flu and pneumonia. And now people are living long enough. And now we're stuck with Alzheimer's and so on. We will, it will yield. It's gonna take some more time, but it will yield. And as long as we all keep putting our best brains forward, as long as we have the money to fund the trials that we need and, and people that are dedicated to helping patients, we have a great future ahead of us. Amazing. I think that really captures um, what a fantastic time it is in, in the biotech industry right now. Uh, just want to thank you, Michael, so much for sharing with us the story of Cario Farm, how it started, what you're trying to do, and your fascinating journey and perspectives on um, operating biotech companies and kind of like what you see changing and how, think, how much things have changed. Um, thank you so much. My pleasure. And you all can be part of this. It's, it's just getting better every day. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Verrilli. I'm Roshan Chickermain. And I'm Jenna Glasser. Thank you for listening.